From WGCU, I'm Mike Canary. Ken Burns and Lynn Novick have pretty much set the standard for long-form television documentaries. Over the past three decades, they have created groundbreaking series, starting with the Civil War in 1990, and including topics like jazz, the national parks, the Vietnam War, and most recently, country music in 2019. Last night, WGCU aired the first episode of their newest documentary series called "The U.S. and the Holocaust." The three-part, six-hour series examines Examines how the United States opened its doors to just a small fraction of the hundreds of thousands of desperate people seeking refuge as the catastrophe of the Holocaust unfolded in Europe. When we first heard about the focus of this latest series, we were immediately reminded of Sanibel resident Robert Hilliard. Now 97 years old, Mr. Hilliard joined us on WGCU's Three Song Stories back in 2019, and during that conversation, recounted his experiences in World War II. One of those stories was. About his time in Germany and the months after it surrendered to the Allies, and the way he and a fellow soldier broke ranks in order to bring the story of the neglect of Jews and other displaced persons they saw there, who had just been released from concentration camps, to the world, no matter the cost to themselves. We're going to listen back to that conversation with him today. One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that uses musical memories to tap into our guests' lives and stories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Robert or Bob Hilliard. I would call Bob, who's been coming to Southwest Florida since the late '90s and has lived here full time since 2007, a local legend. But that would be selling him and his life's accomplishments and stories far short. Bob was born in New York City in 1925. He was drafted in 1944, just as the Allies were planning the D-Day invasion, which he heard reports of during advanced radio training at Fort Benning, Georgia, in the years since the war. And we'll get into some of his stories from that time in a bit. Bob has toured all five continents, giving talks about his memoir from that time called "Surviving the Americans: The Continued Struggle of the Jews After Liberation." There's also a film about his actions during that time.、He、says he's had three careers: first in the media in New York. Working in theater and radio, and later television, he was also drama critic for the Brooklyn Daily Newspaper. He's written about 40 books, about 20 plays. He spent years in Washington D.C. as chief of public broadcasting at the FCC, and chaired the Federal Interagency Media Committee for the White House. And he was present for the signing of the Public Broadcasting Act. He also spent about three decades in academia at Emerson College in Boston, where he was dean of graduate studies, dean of continuing education, professor of mass communication. And is still professor emeritus. The thing about Bob Hilliard is he spent his life—he's 94 now—doing amazing things and standing up for those who need someone to stand up for them, and speaking truth to power in a way we could all definitely learn from. So, needless to say, we're more than honored to have him in the Three Song Stories chair. So, let's get to Bob Hilliard's song stories. Hey there, Bob Hilliard. How you doing? I'm doing fine, and I'm delighted to be here with this wonderful type of show. Is it true that you had lunch with Mr. Rogers and Captain Kangaroo? Oh, how did you know about that? Yes, I do many, my due many diligence. Years ago. <laughs> how did that come about? This was at、uh, I think it was 1970、uh, when I was with the Federal Communications Commission, and、uh, I was chief public broadcasting. And there was a conference on children, a White House conference on children. And there was、um, Bob Keeshan and Fred Rogers, 
And we talked, and we all went and sat down and had lunch together. And I went, um, when I got home that evening, I told my kids about it. My, my children at that time were um, six and ten. And suddenly their father was very, very important <laughs> because he had lunch with Mr. Rogers and Captain Kangaroo. I told Richard that story and he said he had a similar thing with his daughter because his daughter, he dressed up. Who would you dress up as, Richard? I didn't dress up. What happened was my daughter knows I work here and we are PBS station too. And she told her friends at school that I worked with Daniel Tiger and they did not <laughs> believe her. So I came here. And I got one of our staffers to take a picture of me next to the big cardboard cutout of Daniel Tiger with our arms around each other. And she became super cool. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, Well, we'll get further into your FCC years later, but let's move on to the song stories and stuff. Um, What was the musical background of your childhood? I grew up in the um, 1930s. Big bands and ballads. Was there instruments being played around you, or did you ever play instruments? I took piano lessons for my mother when I was a kid. That sounds familiar. She wanted, if she wanted me to take piano lessons, and I did. But the, you know, the problem was instead of practicing in the summers, we were out uh, at a nearby park playing softball. Uh, at that time, I grew up in New York, and at that time, if you asked the kids, now what would you rather? Would you rather be president or hit a home run in Yankee Stadium that wins the World Series? And, of course, everybody chose the latter. Right. And nobody chose pianist. (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, I I had friends who, uh, some of them were were good musicians. Do you have an early musical memory? Like, if you just try to go back as far as you can in your head as a kid, is there something that pops into your mind? Uh, Actually, at that time, and this um, will clarify the fact that I'm 94 years old now. When I was about five years old, we had a radio and I would listen to radio assiduously. I don't know if you, you remember a famous story about um, WR New York had an Uncle Don children's program. Hmm, I don't. Uh, you know, at that time, some of the people were not as good as you are in the control room and were very <laughs> lax. And Uncle Don was a wonderful type of person with kids and talked about how wonderful they are and so forth. One day, they forgot turn it off when the program was over. Oh, boy. And I won't say the exact word, but uh, Uncle Don says, well, that should keep the little blanks for a little (laughs) while. True story. You know, there's a saying we have in radio that every mic is a hot mic. Yes, it is. (laughs) Um, uh, You were a DJ at some point? Yes. uh, Actually, that was one of my first jobs. Station WTUX. In Wilmington, Delaware. Hmm. I was living in in Wilmington. How old were you at that time? Oh, I was older. I was um, 21, 22. So that would have been after the war? After the war, yes. I came back. That was when you came back. Okay. Actually, um, I wanted to be a writer early on. So I went to the radio station and said, um, you know, you need a writer here? And at that time, my voice was considerably better than it is now. Uh, In any event, they heard me speak, and they said, would you like to be a DJ? And I said, absolutely. So I did that for, it was only about a year or so. But you were spinning records then. You were. Oh, absolutely. Did you have have autonomy over what was being played? Like these days, they just play, and then the DJs talk, and there's no connection. Did you get to pick your records? 
Uh, well, they they had a record librarian, ah. and they would have a lot of things out for me. But I I did my own shows. For example, uh, one show I put together myself with with uh, I would go research, pick out a year, pick out the the important things that happened that year, and tie it in with music for that year. Hmm. And that was fun. Yeah, and then you you went on to do a lot more writing than you did DJing, right? Yes, I, that was that was my um, career as a DJ. Let's talk about your first song. What is your first song, and, and what is the story that goes along with it? Uh, I'll, I'll start with a very personal, very personal situation. I had a sister who was six and a half years younger than me, and uh, this was during the Great Depression. Both my parents were working, and so I took care of her probably from the time I was 11 or 12, kind of almost like a surrogate parent, mm -hmm. and loved her very much. And she reacted to me in the same way. Now, during that period, there was a song, a very popular song called, I don't want to walk without you, baby. And my nickname, Robert, became Bob, and so she would call me Bobby. So she would sing lovingly, I don't want to walk without you, Bobby. Well, it, every time I hear that song now, I do get tears <clears throat> in my eyes. Um, she looked at me not only as a big brother, but I think whatever closer you can get to that, like a, like a parent, she became an actress. And, uh, in fact, at, at one time, she was a stand-in for uh, Sophia Loren. Hmm. She was tall, beautiful. She smoked. And at too early an age, uh, she got multiple cancers, died much too young. And I still cry for her. How old was she when she passed away? Fifty-eight. Wow. Now, that may seem older, but... Uh, I mean, that was a long time ago. A long time ago, yeah. Hmm. You want to listen to the song? Yes. What's her name? Pardon me? What's her name? My sister. Mm -hmm. Her stage name was Lee Norman. Hmm. Well, let's listen to it. This is uh, I Don't Want to Walk Without You, performed by Harry James and his orchestra with Helen Forrest, released in 1942. All our friends keep knocking at the door. Out a hundred times or more, but all I say is leave me in the gloom, and here I stay within my lonely room, cause I don't want to walk without you, baby, walk without my
come back Or you'll break my heart for me time you listen to that i cannot remember hmm. because it's not played anymore right what does that make you feel when you listen to that now after all these years i can hear my sister in my mind singing that to me you know it, it, at night or in the dark or if we're walking someplace a little scary she would sing i don't want to walk without you bobby hmm. Are there any other songs from that era that would remind you of your sister or just that time in general? Later, as she grew older, she um, liked a n number of songs, I know, but they were not personal to me. Right. Hmm. You were drafted to go into the war. Yes. When you were 18? 18. Um, what, what was that like for you? Did you? Was it a time when you knew you were going? Was that a surprise? How did that come about? No, it wasn't a surprise. Um, uh, actually, it turned out that I was lucky. I was in college at the time. and What, were you, what were you studying? I was studying uh, pre-law. Okay. Uh, it turned out that when I came back from the war, I turned uh, all the way around and began to study theater. Uh, I decided that I was going to change the world by being George Bernard Shaw rather than Clarence Darrow. <laughs> what was it like going away to war then? There are no good wars. I suppose in history there was there have been necessary wars, and I felt World War II was a necessary war. To prevent the kind of thing happen, that happens when you uh, have a tyrant as a leader in a country, and there are no checks and balances on the tyrant, and they get to do whatever they want, and that's what Hitler, Hitler did. And he was destroying the world. Look, he, he destroyed 11 million people, 6 million Jews, 5 million non-Jews, through deliberate, systematic murder. Nobody was stopping him. So I felt it wasn't a necessary war, and I was happy, uh, almost eager, I guess I was eager, to get into the service. I've read that you studied specialized radio training. Yes, actually. What, that, what does that mean? My first trip to Florida uh, was in February 1944 when I came down to Camp Landing, uh, northern Florida near Jacksonville, for basic training. Apparently had some adaptation to sounds because they gave us tests and they said, okay, you will be studying code, Morse, co Morse code at the okay. time, yeah, yeah. and radio and the use of the various radios. I did that, uh, and then I reached uh, a very high number in terms of taking code. You took it by hand. Then. Right. And they said, okay, we're sending you to advanced radio school at Fort Benning in Georgia. And I was there in advanced radio school. Instead of being overseas, where I would have been in an outfit that landed on D-Day. Hmm. So I missed D-Day. Actually, at that time, in, in our barracks, we knew D-Day happened. And, of course, all of us young kids, 18, 19, 20, oh, gee, too bad. We, we missed D-Day. Gosh, we really, 
you know, but of course we're all saying to ourselves, boy, are we lucky. Huh. Did you have a sense of the, the magnitude of the loss in this, in the, what, just what went down? Well, no, because we were so busy there that we just heard the news reports. Right. We didn't know any more than anybody else, and probably less because um, we didn't have newspapers easily available in the base. Right. So it's mostly radio reports. Yeah. Um, another thing that I read in digging up in information on you was that when you first joined the military, I think when you went to Camp Blanning, is that what you – Yes. Mm -hmm. You guys were singing a song called Mersey Dotes. Oh, that's an interesting one. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. Uh, I, I have. I don't it know you how to, you found that. I have it. If you want to listen to it. Oh, no. well, no. I'll tell you how that happened. Uh, when when I finished at Fort Benning and we were sent overseas, actually we got there in time for the Battle of the Bulge, uh, joined the Second Infantry Division, but we landed in England and and we went to Southampton, where we were to take boats across to France because the war was still going on. Actually, we landed up way up in Scotland, but we got trained down to Southampton, and we walked through the streets as an army unit. And there was a new song that we had heard in the States, and so we walked through the streets, I think confusing a lot of the people who were there, these people, by singing, Mercy don't know, he don't a little lamb, he divey, kizzily divey, wouldn't you? And now you're playing it. When was the last time you heard that? A long time ago. They don't play that anymore either. Uh, does that take you back, though? Oh, yes, of course. Isn't that wild how that happens with music? Yes, and music does that. Uh, you know, uh, Shakespeare said, music be the food of love, play on. But music is the food of life. And that's what you're doing with this program. You're taking music and you're relating it to people's wonderful experiences and I'm sure sometimes very sad experiences. That's indeed. We've definitely, we now have uh, tissues in the studio for a reason because ah. sometimes it, 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 it brings people there. So in the military, you started a newspaper. I was in the infantry, uh, and I was wounded. And when I got to the hospital, they said, um, uh, you're not fit for combat duty anymore. And I, the war was not quite over, but I did miss the uh, push, last push to the Rhine River and, uh, and toward the east. And I was assigned uh, actually to the Army Air Corps at the time. And so they sent me to Louberger Airfield in France. That was before the, the new airfield was built, and that was the main airfield. And we uh, had our troops there and Air Corps there and waiting to be assigned to an Air Corps unit. And that actually leads to one of the other songs. My mother was French. Uh, she emigrated from Paris at the end of World War One, And for years growing up, I heard about Paris. Wonderful, beautiful, lovely Paris. And of course, that was reinforced by movies and books. And, and if you went to movies, of course, Paris was always the, the garden spot of the world. Right. And so I grew up thinking, oh, that's 
most wonderful thing in the world would be to go to Paris. So now this was uh, April 19th, 1945. War was not quite over. And I was at this airfield, and I got a pass to Paris. Two things happened. One, unlike the infantry, where you had a sea ration can and dug a hole in the ground to sleep, uh, I was now in the Air Corps, <laughs> and we had beds and sheets and actually a restaurant with waiters. <laughs> it was like a, a whole different war. Sure. Uh, but we were sitting there that morning, and... The waiter came up, very sad face. Have you have you listened? What what for radio? Roosevelt is dead. Hmm. That was the morning Roosevelt died. We were all young kids still at that time, you know, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. And so the only president we had ever known in our life was Franklin Roosevelt. So, but that's another story, <laughs> and maybe I'll tell you that sometime if we have another program with you. <laughs> uh, but, um, but anyway, I uh, got my pass to Paris and uh, took the bus and then the metro, and I got off on the Champs Elysees. You know, everybody's heard of Champs Elysees. Yeah, it's wonderful. So I got off Champs Elysees, April, and I'm walking along and looking at this wonderful city and the feeling i'm in i'm in really in paris oh, my goodness it's, it's april i'm really in paris and I, right close to me as i was walking by i hear music and it's a uso troupe rehearsing and guess what they were playing april, april in, in paris, paris. Chestnuts in blossom. April in Paris, the song. Every time I hear that, I get emotional. Mm. And do you have that? I have it. You ready? I'm ready for April Let's in Paris. Uh, April in Paris, performed by Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong and his orchestra. April in Paris. This
Whenever I hear that song, it recalls the wonderful emotion I felt that day. How many years ago? Seventy-something. Hmm. How much of it was Paris? How much of it was the song? How much of it was just the contrast between Paris and what you'd been going through? Was it all those things? Was it something I've missed? No, Paris in itself was the goal. I had looked forward to it so many years growing up, and uh, it all just came together. Hmm. What was the day like? It was a lovely day that day. It was warm April, uh, sun was shining, and it was just like Paris should have looked like and should have felt like. Hmm. How long were you there? Just for that day. Just the day? Just the one day. How often have you been back? A number of times. Yeah? And every time I go, it's a whole new wonderful city. Um, Did you ever see much live music? Did you get to see any of these, the big bands that you were into, the musicians that you love? Did you get to see any of those over the years? Well, unfortunately, during the the 30s, it was very expensive, Mm -hmm. like, uh, what, 90 cents Mm -hmm. to go see... uh, Big man in person. Now, over the years, I've I've uh, seen singers and with bands. One of the stories that I've uncovered from reading up on you has to do with the role that you played at the end of the war with a letter that you wrote. Was that prior to or after this trip to Paris? Oh, that was after. Uh, chronologically, I was signed to the Air Corps and uh, joined what was called the Second Air Disarmament Wing. Uh, That was the organization which disarmed the German Air Force and looked for all of the German inventions, like the flying wing, and sent them back to Wright Field uh, in order to develop them as our weapons. And, of course, we did. Uh, Our jet development was largely based on some of the uh, German inventions. They, They were way ahead of us, I think, at the time. And when I joined this organization, we ended up at one of the major German, I think it may have been their principal Air Force training base, in a place called Kaufbeuren in Bavaria. Well, there were a number of us people they didn't know what to do with. We had a very interesting group of people in the Second Air Disarmament Wing. One was the basic organization uh, that had been in England during the war, working with the 9th Air Force. Another group of people who were put there, didn't know what to do with them, were uh, people who had been in the army jails. These were the the rebels. They were wonderful people. Mm. They just revolted against the discipline. You had your own little dirty dozen. That's right. Very (laughs) much like that. And then the rest of us, about one-third, were kids like myself uh, who were wounded. They didn't know what to do with us. We, our wounds were enough not to send us back to the front lines, but not bad enough to send us back home. Hmm. So we joined that. And so they wanted to know what I, I, I could do. Well, I had to work for a newspaper back home. I was a sports reporter. That was actually my first professional job. And so I said, I'll start a newspaper. And I did. And shortly uh, after that, someone said, you know, uh, good story. Uh, There's a place called St. Atinian. It's a Benedictine monastery. 
where a bunch of Jewish survivors are having a liberation concert. So I went up there and I found that uh, indeed that was so, 420 people, survivors. And it's a long story, but to make it short, I found that the survivors, Jews and non-Jews, displaced persons, were getting no help from any source. They continued to die. No food, no clothing, no shelter. Uh, they fended for themselves. And uh, so another GI, Ed Herman, who died some years ago, uh, and I did everything we could to try to save the lives of these people at St. Etienne. Uh, finally, it ended up where we wrote a long letter to people in the United States saying, uh, there's continued genocide, and you were to blame. Uh, and so we want you to send food and clothing and medicines. In the meantime, a number of interesting things happened. One, President Truman had sent um, the dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Earl Harrison, to look into what was happening to the refugees in Europe. Uh, the letter reached President Truman, and he had given it to Earl Harrison. And so one day when we were, uh, Ed and I were in uh, Munich, which was the general headquarters there, we met Earl Harrison, and he said, oh, you're the two youngsters. I was 19 by then. Uh, Ed was an old man. He was 24. <laughs> uh, and uh, you're the two youngsters who wrote this letter. We're going to do something about it. And so I said, oh, Ed, we're going to be court-martialed. This was all illegal. Right. Uh, you should have gone through, on our own. You should have gone through proper channels, and you didn't. Well, uh, no, because they wouldn't let us do it. Because a couple of days later, uh, Phil Colonel came from Paris and said, I'm here because General Eisenhower wanted me to tell you and Ed Herman that he appreciates what you're doing beyond the call of duty, but you now need to send out no more letters. We didn't know what was happening. And incidentally, um, the war is over. The war was over in Japan by then. And he said, you know, we need soldiers like you and Ed Herman up in the Aleutian Islands. And he said, I looked at your record. I noticed you had frozen feet in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, you wouldn't like it up there. You'd have to put in the ski boots. Where are the Aleutian Islands? The islands and up in in. Alaska. Okay. Like oh, the Bering yeah, Sea. Yeah, up in Alaska. <laughs> you, know, you know where the Aleutians are. You know how cold it now gets. Now I know. Okay. E even not in the winter. Right, right. Uh, and uh, that night we did send out more letters. But the upshot was that uh, these letters had a great effect. President Truman, the uh, New York Times headline on September, I think September 30th, 1945, read, President orders Eisenhower to end new abuse of Jews, likens our treatment to that of the Nazis. So we, Ed and I, uh, were very pleased with what we were able to do, and uh, we, I think, helped save the lives of thousands of survivors of the concentration camps. Uh, through that, we have met with and had reunions with some of those survivors. And actually last June, I went back to a conference at this monastery in St. Attilian in Bavaria, where we met with a bunch of 
number of people now in their 70s who were babies mm. born at St. Etienne of the people, the mothers and fathers, who we met there and helped save. That must have been pretty powerful. It still is. Hmm. It still is. But the, the point of that is we were two privates. Yeah. Uh, no power, no connections, uh, but we stuck our necks out. What I tell people, I've been making speeches about this all over the country and actually other foreign countries, and I say, look, if you see something in your town, on your playground, there are bullies, there are politicians you don't like in your, in your country, things happening that you see that you think are wrong, try to change it. You may not succeed, but you may succeed, and if you succeed, you will have achieved in doing something very important for humanity. And the, the people who respond most, frankly, are children in elementary schools. You've done a lot of things since then. Did accomplishing that at that young age give you a sense of, I can do things, I can make differences in the world with my actions and my decisions? It goes beyond that. It is to look, and if there's something you see is wrong, is hurting people, do what you can to stop it. How many books have you written? I found uh, about about forty. About forty. <laughs> um, were you an author? Were you were you something else? A guy who wrote books? I couldn't no, quite no, get to I, the base to the base of it. No, I had I had three careers. Uh, my first career was in the media of New York, um, working in the theater, working in television and radio, and uh, actually uh, for a while, for several years, I was a drama critic for the uh, Brooklyn Daily newspaper. That was very exciting. Then my second career was uh, with the Federal Communications Commission in, and with the federal government in Washington. I was uh, chief of public broadcasting at the FCC and um, some years chaired the Federal Interagency Media Committee uh, for the White House. Um, and that was also exciting. And then when I retired from the government, I went into academia. I was a college dean and then later professor. Now uh, I find I don't have enough time. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, working right now on a nonfiction book and two novels, and I continue to write plays. And people say, uh, you know, well, what do you do? I mean, you're, you're 94, uh, you sit around on your rocking chair on the porch, that's not what life's about. There are always things to do. I was lucky, uh, whatever the skills I have for writing. So I'm up in the middle of the night writing. Huh. Because particularly when you reach a certain age, you know that not that many years left. You've got to get these done. You've got to make your points. More important to me here in uh, this area of, of Florida was being able to have the special pleasure and privilege of being on the advisory board here at WGCU for some years. And also, at this present time, I'm continuing to work on plays and have a number of plays that I hope will be done. I guess I'm saying all this to those people who are retired and saying, what do I do with myself? I don't want to sit around and and play mahjong or, or uh, solitaire all day long. 
Everybody has an interest. Everybody can do something. But you just got to do it. And it doesn't matter whether you do it well or badly, but you could do it. It doesn't matter if you succeed. It's doing. It's letting yourself out. It's presenting to the world whatever you have within you that you can give the world. And it may be writing. It may be drawing. It may be painting. It may be getting on a picket line or participating in a, in a political campaign. But they can do it, and it keeps you alive. Hmm. What kind of doctor are you? PhD. In what? Basically, media education. Okay. I saw, I saw a doctor on your name somewhere, yeah. and I couldn't track down the source of it. Columbia um, University. Columbia University. Um, you uh, were there when the Public Broadcasting Act was signed. Yes, uh, actually, I was at Lyndon Johnson's signing, uh, and uh, I won the pens that he signed it with. Wow. How many presidents have you met? I think only Lyndon Johnson. Only Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> well, that's surprising to me. I've Bob seen him like... presidents, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, how does it feel for you to watch PBS today and listen to NPR today, knowing the history of it so intimately? That's a dull-edged question. In one sense, it has grown so tremendously, and uh, it's been so creative in so many ways. And yet sometimes, when I listen to some programs, I say to myself, this could be better. Hmm. But of course, if you're in this field, you do the same thing. When you're listening to it, when you're not working and presenting the material, you're listening to it or watching it, I'm sure those of you, because you're in the field, you're an expert, you're professional, you're more critical than you would be. When you're in this field, you do it to your own shows. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember Neil Conan, Talk of the Nation host on, N on NPR? Oh, yes. He yes. did a station visit once, and he said, I said, do you ever listen to Talk of the Nation when you're not hosting it? And he said, no. Either it's worse than me and it makes me mad, uh -huh. or it's better than me and it makes me mad. Right, <laughs> right. Um, let's move on to your third song. Now, we've had to change this at the end. Uh, what was the song that we were trying to get that we couldn't find? In uh, the musical play written by Mark Blitzstein, which deals with union and deals with uh, management. Mr. Mister, who controls the town, sings a song uh, saying, one step forward and two steps back. And that deals with the way he treats people and progress. And of course, Ms. Mark Blitzstein was, it was a political play. It was very pro-union. And uh, I remember seeing that and I, uh, because um, growing up during a period of the 30s, I saw uh, what unions did. You know, unions gave people a 40-hour week, gave people a safe place to work, gave people pensions, gave them vacations. I mean, all the things that, that everybody has now who are working, whether they're a union or not, but unions gave it to them. And so I was very much impressed by that particular play. Uh, and that song, I can't find it, and you couldn't find no, it. No, we couldn't find and, it and anywhere. I, so I suggest an, an alternative, and um, this relates to a person who I knew, who I considered probably the greatest human being I've ever met, hmm. outside of 
parents, relatives, friends. He was uh, an All-American football player. He got a law degree from Columbia University. He was an award-winning Broadway actor. He was a worldwide known, very famous baritone, and he was a great civil rights leader, setting the stage for people like Martin Luther King Jr. His name was Paul Robeson. And Paul Robeson, an African-American, probably the best baritone voice that anyone's ever heard. He was very active politically. Uh, one of the outstanding experiences of my life, and any people out there who know the history of civil rights will know what I mean when I say I was at peak skill with Paul Robeson. If you don't know what that means, all I can tell you is that was a civil rights rally for civil rights, not only for blacks, but for everybody and for civil liberties. And we were attacked and beaten up by uh, far right wing groups, uh, the kind of groups that we see today espousing hatred and bigotry and racism. But that was one of the beginnings of civil rights movements hmm. in this country. Paul Robeson was vilified. Uh, he couldn't work in this country because he refused to be in demeaning roles. He went to England and he made movies there. During the Cold War, his passport was taken away. He couldn't work here. Uh, Paul Robeson, uh, at one point early on, went to Soviet Union there he said he was treated like a human being and not as a second-class citizen. So he was labeled a communist. He was far from anything but a very patriotic American. And uh, I knew Paul and loved him. And in fact, one of the great, other great moments of my life was when he gave a concert in Cleveland. He invited me to sit on the stage with him. Hmm. And I was sitting... 10 feet away from where he sang. Uh, one of his great songs, attesting to his love of America, was The House I Live In, and you have it to play. Let's listen to it. Uh, the House I Live In uh, by Paul Robeson. What is America to me? A name, a man. Of a flag I see A certain word And democracy What is America to me? The house I live in My neighbors white and black The people who just came here Often generations back the town hall and the soapbox, the torch of liberty, a home for all God's children, that's America to me. The house I live in, the goodness everywhere, a land of wealth and beauty, with enough for all to share. A house that we call freedom, the home of liberty. 
for a special need of people that's America to me. For a special need of people that's the truth of America. That song put up against the story you just told about how he was treated is really yes. something. How'd you guys meet? Uh, I was uh, in graduate school in Cleveland. And uh, that was the time for the Cold War was really heating up. And I was very active in terms of um, always up in civil rights, civil liberties. And he came to Cleveland, and that's where I met him the first time. What are your thoughts on the world today and the, the ways that we've seemingly gone off the rails, if I can be so bold? And I'll try to be as um, diplomatic as I can. But uh, one of the things I saw in World War II was how a nation can be led by a dictatorial leader. Early on, the people in Germany were not all Nazis, but they wanted change. And the change that they took was to elect as chancellor of Germany a uh, bigot, a racist, anti-Semite, who had a small group, not very large group of people, but very faithful people with him. And rather than continue as chancellor, and he was elected president after that, uh, in the role of a democratic person, he took upon himself the idea that he was above the law, that uh, he could do anything he wanted. He appointed to top posts the people who supported him, who weren't necessarily qualified for those roles. When the legislature itself wanted to do something, he simply uh, ignored the legislature. That's how dictators have developed in various countries throughout the world. And I am very concerned that in any country, when the population sits back and lets someone flout the law, act as if they are a dictator, paying no attention to the democratic rules and processes of their country, we allow ourselves eventually to be led down the kind of road that uh, the people in Italy under Mussolini and the people in Germany under Hitler and uh, people in various other countries throughout the world have let themselves be taken. You've lived a long time. You've watched a lot of the world happen. Could you have imagined you'd be at a place now at your age making that statement or reflection? I did not think it would happen in my country. One of the questions that we ask uh, is, what would your middle school self think of who you are today, which would be your 13, 14-year-old self? 
I'm going to rephrase it. Be very surprised. Okay. Well, I won't rephrase it then. Go go on with it. Yeah. You what know, would your younger self think if he looked at you right now here in this place in the world? You know, uh, very strange. When I entered college, I, I um, graduated from high school on my 16th birthday. So I started college a few months later. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought uh, probably because my parents were interested in that, I would be pre-med. And I remember not being very sure about it. And I took a course in physics, and I hated it. So I thought, something is not quite right. I really should not go into the sciences. I took a, at that time they had, may still have something called Cooter Preference Test. And the test tests various types of things that you're interested in, who you want to associate with. And uh, I took that, and they said, uh, what you really ought to be is an author journalist. And I said, nonsense. Hmm. I'm not a writer. That's what I became. It knew. Somehow. <laughs> huh. Um, so your 13-year-old self would look at all your accomplishments probably with a lot of pride. Well, I'm not so sure because I've not won a Pulitzer Prize. Oh, it's not too late. I've not had a plate on Broadway. So uh, I'd be very happy to submit any of my 20 plays to uh, any producer who wants to read them. <laughs> um, uh, what are you working on now? You said you're working on a play and a couple books. Is, is that what you said? Uh, I'm uh, actually uh, in 1997, I published uh, my memoir of what we were talking about earlier, uh, in Germany, post-war Germany, and the plight of the displaced persons called Surviving the Americans, uh, the continuing struggle of the Jews after liberation. And uh, it's been out of print for some years oh. now, so I'm now working on an updated edition. I've learned a lot more about what happened back then. It doesn't deal only with uh, the St. Ottilian hospital and monastery, um, but with um, information about what happened right after the war for several months to um, all the displaced persons. And I have originally had and still have all the documentation. Uh, in fact, it was on the part of our American occupation forces genocide by neglect. Do you sing? You sung a couple times here in the studio. Are you a singer? Well, let's see. Do you have a shower stall here? And I'll show you. you we can close our eyes and pretend. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sang both the first, those first two songs without any, um, you know, embarrassment. It seemed. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think my voice at this point is strong enough to do that. Oh, I love to sing. You know, we all do in the shower or, and. Um, my wife puts up with my singing. Actually, she says I'm pretty good, but uh, I think she's just being nice. <laughs> um, did you ever get up on stage? You said you'd studied theater. I mean, you've written plays. Did you oh, ever yes. do any acting? Uh, yeah, I was a member. I did professional acting one time way back. I was a member of Actors' Equity Association. and Actually, my first union was AFRA. American Federation of Radio Artists. Hmm. Um, that was before it became after American Federation of Radio and Television Artists, before television. 
that was 1949, I huh. believe. And I joined AFRA at the time because um, in Cleveland there was a very good show, a uh, radio show called The Cleveland Story. And I can't remember, it was 15 minutes, I think it was a half an hour. Dramas about events in the history of Ohio, of Ohio story, it was called. Uh, and so I acted on that show for a while. Was, and um, at that time, uh, I was in graduate school and living on a GI Bill. And I'm trying to remember what we got for each show, something like $15, hmm. uh, which was a lot of money back then. Um, okay, no, normally the last question we ask is, are there any songs that you'll avoid listening to for whatever reason? But I'm going to go ahead and say Hamilton for you. <laughs> you <know> well, <laughs> no, I no, I, I really, I, I was being a little facetious about that. Okay. No, uh, I'm not into uh, rock or, or rap, but I listen to it because I find it interesting and sometimes entertaining. Part of the problem is I don't understand the lyrics. Right. Maybe read them, read along. Yes, that would help. <laughs> okay. Uh, my real last question is: Is okay? You've done so many things, Bob Hilliard. What's one thing that we don't know about you? Give us a little gem. Hmm, that's a very interesting question. I never thought about that. Uh, I don't know. I haven't been shy. I've told you everything I've been doing. Okay, well then, any final thoughts? My final thought is that I think what you're doing in getting people to relive moments in their lives through music is very important. And even though sometimes it's painful, it's one way of finding your past and perhaps understanding your past and yourself better than you might otherwise. Well, thank you so much for doing it. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It, it's been a joy being with you. You've been listening to episode number 86 of Three Song Stories with now 97-year-old Sanibel resident Robert Hilliard, which originally released in November of 2019. Hilliard is a humanitarian, activist, educator, author, and playwright. He is former chief of public broadcasting at the FCC and was professor and dean at Emerson College in Boston for more than three decades and remains professor emeritus there. He's also written dozens of books and plays. We aired his episode today because of his stories about the time he spent in the U.S. Army during World War II and his efforts to bring attention to the mistreatment of Jews and other displaced persons in the wake of the war. Be sure to tune in to WGCU-TV tomorrow night at 8 for the second installment of Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's new PBS documentary series, The U.S. and the Holocaust, which examines how, as the catastrophe of the Holocaust unfolded in Europe, the United States opened its doors to just a small fraction of the hundreds of thousands of desperate people seeking refuge. Our show today was produced by Richard Chinqui, Tara Callaghan, and myself. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is NPR for Southwest Florida, 90.1 WGCU-FM, Fort Myers, Naples, and Punta Gorda, and 91.7 WMKO, Marco Island. We're a member-supported service of Florida Gulf Coast University.